Uh, welcome again to Gateway Downtown. We have been going through the, the book of Joshua. Um, we are really digging into chapter 5 today. Uh, so before you all finish sitting down, I'm going to ask you guys to stand up. And we are going to uh, read Joshua. We're going to stand to honor that it's God's words and not our words. And so we're going to turn, flip, swipe, click, whatever you need to do to get to Joshua chapter 5, verses 2 through 12. I'll read that, we'll pray, and we will begin. I apologize for the screaming, crying baby, it's mine, but I don't have that much control. Joshua chapter 5, verses 2 through 12. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Ha'aralath. Ha'aralath, sorry. I put an extra syllable in there. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised and they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. When the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain, and the manna ceased that day after they ate the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel. They ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Let's pray. Father, just thank you for your word. We thank you for the way you speak to us today, even from texts that are so old and so ancient, and yet in your providence you preserve them for us, and you have a message for your people. God, may we be faithful to speak or to listen as the case might be, um, to exactly what you would have for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. So a quick recap. The book of Joshua started with Joshua and the Israelites to the east of the Jordan River, the east of the, the, east of the border of what was typically considered to be Canaan or Palestine, what we generally know as Israel today. And they have... Uh, been brought to that point, Moses, who led the Israelites out of Egypt and led them in the wilderness for roughly 40 years, has died. They need a new leader. That leader was Joshua. He was appointed by Moses and he was appointed by God, by Yahweh, to lead the Israelites. The Israelites have pledged their devotion and their loyalty to Joshua. Those portions of the nation of Israel that were supposed to take some land East 
of the Jordan River have pledged that they are going to continue to fight the battles in the western portion of the land that they are given and not leave their brothers to fight by themselves. So there's been a national unity and a rallying around Joshua. They have sent out a reconnaissance mission into the area around Jericho, and they discovered that in this town of pagans in in Jericho was a woman, a prostitute, who had heard what God had been up to in the Israelites and had placed her faith in the God of all creation. And then the Israelites prepared to enter the land. And so two weeks ago, we read about how they miraculously crossed the Jordan River during its highest flood stage by the ark of the Lord, which symbolized His presence, symbolized God's presence going before them. The river Jordan was pulled back all the way up to the city of Adam and they were able to cross on dry ground. When the priests left the river, the river closes up. They are now in the land that, had been, that God had promised to give to them. They are in the land that God had promised to give not just to them, but to their parents. Not just to their parents, but to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob four, five hundred years earlier. And after all of this history, and after all this time that you can read about in Genesis, and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five chapters of Joshua. At this point, they have entered into this land that God has swore to give to them. So they've made it. But they're not ready. They're not ready. And so we look at verses uh, 1 through 7 here. We we see that before, here they've got the reconnaissance mission. They've, They've spied out Jericho. They know that it's target number one. In their military conquest, they know where they're going, they know what they're doing, but before they can embark on a military conquest of Canaan, there's a couple things that they have to do. And the first one is that they need to be circumcised. Now before we went through the book of Joshua, we went through Galatians, and it feels like we were talking about circumcision constantly, so we're all the way back in uh, Galatians, and we get to talk about people having pieces of their body cut off again. And this is Obviously, one of our favorite things to talk about at church. Um, and they take care of this business at a place called Gibeath Ha'araloth, which was apparently named for this event. Um, it means hill of foreskins. And so I think the idea was that when you make your maps and you put Gibeath Ha'araloth on there, everyone knows you stay away from that area, right? There's like, they, they know to build the roads around there and not because no one wants to go to Hill of Foreskins. That is not your premier vacation destination, right? There's a couple translations that actually write that in, but most of them, you'll notice, don't translate it. They just leave the Hebrew in there because you don't want to know, right? Well, now you know. Uh, so, obviously, it's a sizable number of men that are having this procedure done. Um, that They get a hill out of it. Um, you would think they might just bury it in, each in their own place, but no, they, they heap them up. And uh, it's, it's uncomfortable, but it's in the text. We have to talk about it, you know. With the grow-up, we're mature adults in this room, with a couple exceptions. Jonah, you grow up. Don't, don't giggle over there. Um, 
But here's, here's the situation. Here's why this is important. All right, the Israelites had left Egypt, we find out, and, and the generation that had left Egypt disobeyed Yahweh. And we've talked about it briefly, but for the sake of you guys who, who weren't here or who are new, uh, the, the basic thing is that the first time they sent spies into the land, ten of them came back and said, wow, this is a great land that God is giving us, but the people are too strong and we can't go into this land. A couple of the spies, a guy named Joshua and, and a guy named Caleb, said, they are big, they are strong, and the land is good, but by our God's help, we can take it. But the people of Israel listened to those ten spies who said that the people of the land were too strong and too powerful for them, and so there was a real lack of faith, a real lack of trust that God was able to do something beyond their power. And because they didn't have faith in God, God told them that they were not going to enter the land. And so... As a result, even though they were really, really close to where God was going to take them, they were on the southern border of, of Israel, of Canaan, of Palestine, God had them wander, so to speak, for about 40 years in the wilderness until everyone of that generation, all the adults who, who basically said we're not going in, all those who could be held responsible for the community's decision to not enter the land of Canaan, until they all had died out and a new generation had risen up. And for whatever reason, during this time, the, the people who had come out of Egypt, they had been uh, circumcised as, as God's law had commanded, but for whatever reason, maybe because they lacked faith, maybe because they didn't really believe in the promises of Yahweh, they hadn't ensured that their children had been circumcised. And so all the people born in the wilderness had not been circumcised, and this is a problem. This is a problem because... For the Israelites, this was a sign of the covenant. Circumcision was, was given to Abraham. And uh, God promised Abraham that he would have a son. And Abraham was getting really, really old. And, and God told him, this is going to happen. I promise you it's going to happen. I know your, your body doesn't work very well anymore, but I'll tell you what, I want you to take a piece of that body and I want you to cut it off and I'm going to make it work. I mean, it... it this is what happened. Um, and, and so it's a symbol of the covenant relationship that God entered with his people. And two weeks ago when we talked about uh, chapters 3 and 4 and them crossing the river, one of the things that we picked up on was that when they crossed the Jordan River, it was just a few days before the Passover. In fact, it was the day that traditionally a Jewish family would have chosen a lamb to slaughter the lamb, the lamb that would come and live in their house before they... They slaughtered it on the Passover to celebrate that feast. That's the day they crossed the river. So we knew this was coming up, but according to the law, no one who is uncircumcised is allowed to celebrate the Passover. The Passover feast was solely for those people who had been brought into the community of faith. And so they weren't prepared. They weren't properly set apart for God's purposes. God was about to execute judgment on the people of Canaan. And I keep promising you this, and I prom we're, we're going to get there. We're going to talk about some of the, the tricky issues with the ethics of that when we get to that point. But God is about to execute judgment on a people that had sinned against Him, that had rejected Him, that had turned their backs on Him, that had had nothing to do with Him and wanted nothing to do with Him. The land of Canaan. 
and the people of Israel were going to be his tool to do that, but in order for that to happen, they needed to be equipped. Ultimately, what they were about to encounter was not just a physical warfare, it was a spiritual warfare. Because this was a battle at its root, not between two militaries, but between the God of the universe, who desperately loved his creation, and a people who had continually, <laughs> excuse me, continually provoked him, continually rebelled against them, to the point where their judgment was imminent. And if they weren't properly part of the community of faith, they were not going to be able to endure this spiritual warfare. So, um, hold that thought a second. It says then in the next couple of verses, when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. That sounds about right. Um, Men, yes, we need a few minutes. Um, and the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, and so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. All right, so a couple takeaways. When, as we as Christians look at a book like Joshua, it can be challenging because there's a couple temptations. There, there's a temptation to try to uh, nationalize a, a book like this for us. We try to figure out, okay, how, how do I understand a book like Joshua? How do I make it relevant to my life? And so since this is about the nation of Israel, maybe I make it about my nation. All right, and so there's a temptation maybe to try to take stories from the Old Testament about Israel and like make them about the United States or about Canada or wherever you're from. Okay? And, and that is not the way to do it. Okay, that, that's not what God is saying. We, we are not Israel. We are not ancient Israel. Uh, the, the rules that, and the things that God did in Israel's history are not directly what God is doing in the United States of America. Okay? God, God didn't choose uh, for himself uh, Washington, Jefferson, and Madison to be a special people unto himself. It's not, that wasn't biblical history. Right? He chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All right, so we, we want to not go down that road. We want to not go down this, this road of, oh, okay, so um, you know, we're, our nation is doing spiritual warfare, and we have to... What we need to look at is the fact that the, the Israelites, though they were a nation, were also supposed to be the people of faith. And this is where we resonate with them as Christians. They were supposed to be the people of faith. And Christians are supposed to be the people of faith. All right? the, the church with a capital C, not, not gateway downtown, but capital C church, the universal church, the, the body of all Christians all over the world, all places, that's the people of faith. We have been called into one new people. And, and, and that is our, our best connection with these Old Testament Stories like this. And so we see the church. But we're not on a military victory. Again, the military outlook of a book like Joshua was really just an, an external uh, outward manifestation of what was ultimately a spiritual battle. This was a, a battle between the, the worship of Yahweh and, and the rejection of Yahweh. 
And we'll get into some of the specifics of that as we get into the actual warfare. It gets a little bit tricky. But the ultimate concern here is that this is spiritual warfare. And, and this is an area that resonates for us as Christians today in that we have been called, we have been uh, set apart by God for His purposes, for His glory. And as far as we are in this life, there are going to be spiritual battles that we face. There's going to be a spiritual warfare that we have to endure. And before we can even be prepared to endure the spiritual warfare that exists in this world, we have to properly be part of the community of faith. Because the reality is, is whether you're a Christian or not, there's a spiritual war going on around you. There are, there are forces that are trying to, to drag you farther and farther away from God and His good rule. And there are, there is, there's God's Holy Spirit uh, pursuing people in this world and calling them to repentance. And so you are part of a spiritual battle, whether you realize it or not. But unless you have entered the community of faith, there is no hope for you. And there was no hope for the Israelites. There was no hope for the Israelites in, to pursue uh, a, a, and survive and endure a spiritual battle apart from being properly incorporated into the community of faith. And for them, that meant no less than being circumcised. But for us as Christians, the circumcision is not a circumcision down there. It's a circumcision in here. As Scripture makes clear, Paul says that the the circumcision we need is a circumcision of the heart. In other words, it's not a piece of our flesh that needs to be dedicated to God, but it is really our very existence that needs to be dedicated to God. And it's not something that's just done to, to children, to male children, who happen to be born into it. it it's, a, it's something that's out there and available for all of us. That we need the Holy Spirit to uh, come into our lives, to convict us of our sins, to bring us to repentance, which means turning back, on, the, on our rebellion against God, turning back on our sins and our crimes, and, and, and trusting in Christ in faith. And there's a renewal that takes place. And Paul calls it the circumcision of the heart. And outside of that conversion, which is what we talked about last week, that conversion that involves faith and repentance, turning from our sins and trusting in Christ with all of our hearts and minds and souls, outside of that, we are functionally incapable of enduring the spiritual battles that this world has for us. And so the Israelites needed to do that. But the interesting thing is, because they apparently they wanted people to uh, visit uh, the Hill of Foreskins, they gave it another name, uh, Gilgal. And uh, Gilgal fit better on a map, it was shorter. But it also meant something like, it sounded like the word to roll away. And, and, and they said, it's because I have rolled away, Yahweh speaking, God speaking, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt. Well, what's, what are they talking about, the reproach of Egypt? And there's a little bit of debate about it, but the most sensible explanation to me, as I understand it, is that the land of Egypt, the nation of Egypt, probably looked at the people of Israel, with derision and scorn and contempt. Do you remember when, and, and hopefully you do, but if you remember the story 
uh, when they were in the wilderness and when God was just furious with the Israelites because of their idolatry, he was furious with them for their rebellion, their, their lack of desire to enter the land, their lack of desire to trust him, that he could do these good things. And he was just about ready to destroy the Israelites. And Moses said, God, if you destroy the Israelites, then the people of Egypt are going to say, hey, where is their God? Their God couldn't even bring them out. Their God couldn't even save them. And you can imagine that here you have this, this large group of people that wandering the wilderness without home, without crops, without real food. They, they have to get special food from God, but um, you know, they don't have a normal diet. And they're wandering the wilderness, homeless, and it probably looks to an outsider, like an Egyptian, well, they got out of here, but look what good it did them. Over 40 years, they, they wandered in the wilderness. And you can imagine that, that the Egyptians and maybe some of the other nations probably looked down on them with, with contempt. At, at one time, they looked like they were going to be the uh, bad dudes. I mean, they were just going to roll through Canaan and take this place out. And now all of a sudden, they're kind of scaredy cats, and they don't even want to go in. And despite all of that, now, at this moment, they have entered into the land. The land that God had promised to give them when they left Egypt. The land that he said he would be faithful to take them to. He has done it. They are there. The land is around them. And the reproach is taken away. The Egyptians can no longer say, where is your God? Where is your God who, who promised to take you into this new land? Where is he? He's right with them. Because they're in. I think as Christians, we too need to remember that we will face the reproach of the world. The world is going to tell us from time to time that our God has abandoned us. And, and we'll see it when, when you know, bad things happen to us, when life gets difficult, when, when traumatic experiences happen in our lives, and there, there's going to be people we feel, some of them will be cruel enough to actually say it to us, and some of them we just, we just feel it. We know what they're thinking, and, and it's surrounding us, and they're saying, you know what, you know, why are you living this way? Why are you carrying on this way? What, where is your God now? I thought your God was supposed to make your life so great. Your life is a mess. Where is your God? And there's going to be times in life when, because of the evil in this world, that things are like that. There's going to be times that we feel that way because of the mistakes that other people make who've called themselves by this name Christian. And yet, we know that our reproach is going to be rolled away. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul writes this to some Christians in Thessalonica who are worried about some of their, their family and loved ones and friends who have died and Jesus hasn't returned yet. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, 
God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. When we're facing uh, persecutions and trials and insults and scorn and, and reproach from the world, comfort each other with these words. What Paul paints is this picture that when Jesus returns on the day, and I'm not going to get into eschatology, that's a different day, but this little bit, when Jesus returns, the dead Christians, the dead faithful lovers of Jesus are going to be risen from the dead and they are going to appear with Christ in his descent to the earth. And then those of us, if any of us here, but whoever it is who is alive when Jesus returns are going to be caught up together with him and he is going to descend to judge the world and we are going to appear with him. As Paul says elsewhere, when Christ our life appears, we will appear with him. So we are going to be manifested in glory aside the God of the universe, Jesus Christ. And all, those, all that reproach, all those people who spoke ill of us, all those people who thought, where is your God now? I thought your life was supposed to be so great. Where is this Jesus that you love? How did Jesus help you? They're going to see us in glory by the side of Jesus Christ and the reproach will be rolled away. So we encourage each other with these words. That's a pretty awesome idea. And so when it is time, we are not entering a Palestine. We are not entering Canaan. There is going to be a new Jerusalem, a new heavens, and a new earth. And when it is time to enter that new land and to enter God's final rest, we will be revealed with Christ in glory and the reproach of this world will be taken away. And then finally, in the, the last part of this passage, while the people of Israel were encamped with Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And so we here we have this, this kind of fitting bookend. We go all the way back to the Exodus. The, the Exodus started there in Egypt. They celebrate the first Passover, and then they leave Egypt. And then they enter Canaan, and they celebrate the Passover again. Kind of a fitting book. And the Passover, we spoke about it a little bit last week when we did communion. And originally this was supposed to line up with communion, but that's okay, we can talk about it twice. The Passover was this Jewish feast that celebrated God taking the Israelites out of Egypt, right? Because God passed over. He struck down the firstborn throughout Egypt, but he passed over the homes of those who trusted in him, who had faith in him. And they exhibited their faith by placing the blood of a slain lamb on their doorpost. And so we as Christians look back on that same event, but even more so look back on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who became our Passover lamb. So that on the day of God's judgment, if the door of your life is marked by the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, 
your sins, your crimes against God will be passed over on the basis of what he did, not on the basis of how good we are, not on the basis of how much great stuff we've done for God, not on the basis of how many times we've taken communion or mass, not on the basis of how many times we've, we've, uh, we've, we've confessed our sins, not on the basis of how much we've read our Bibles, not on the basis of how many good charity deeds we've done, not on the basis of how much money we've given to different organizations, let alone our church, but simply on the basis of the goodness of Jesus Christ. Because all of our good deeds are like filthy rags in the eyes of God. And so, because of what Christ did for us on our behalf, what we couldn't do, we can be forgiven and our sins passed over on the day of judgment. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grains, and a manna feast. So, in the wilderness, there was very little to eat. God provided them miraculously of food, but now... This miraculous provision from God has come to an end. Why? Because God has kept His promises. He has brought them exactly where He needs them to be. The same is true for us Christians as well. Jesus, when He prophesies about the the end times, and I, I didn't intend this to sound like an end time sermon, it's not, but when Jesus tells His disciples about the end times, He says that, if it wasn't for the elect, except for the, for the sake of the elect, for the sake of those God has chosen, God will cut those days of tribulation short so that even they can sustain and endure the worst days of trial and tribulation in this life. And what we see is a God who so carefully orchestrates history for the sake of His people. That he will never put us in a position, never put us in a trial, never put us in a difficulty so strong that it crushes us. But he will provide just enough. He will always provide enough for his people to endure. In the same way, he always provided exactly what his people needed as they wandered through the wilderness He provided them food. He provided them water miraculously. He provided them everything they needed to sustain. The wilderness was not a great experience. It was not happy fun times. But God persevered His people through a difficult trial and saw them through to the completion of His promises. There are too many uh, preachers and uh, preachers public speakers who want to tell you that everything is supposed to be rosy in this life. And and God never promises that. In fact, the the opposite is true. Because this world is marred by sin and because um, we are separated from our Creator, this life is going to be difficult. It has moments of great joy and great pleasure, but it's still a difficult world we live in. It is so far from what God designed it to be. And there is no promise that everything is going to come up roses in your life. There is no promise that you are going to be rich and prosperous. There is no promise that that every single one of your illnesses is going to be healed if you have faith in this life. But God will see you through. If you trust in Him, He will persevere you. He will 
protect you and see you through until his promises are complete in you. And then on that day when the promises are complete in God, then we will enjoy the words that Jesus said to his disciples at the last summer. He said, I will not drink this cup again until I drink it with you in the kingdom of my Father. And so there's a day that is coming when we will be enjoying the presence of our Savior. And we will sit down at a a banquet meal and we will celebrate the greatest Passover meal that has ever taken place. We will celebrate the meal in which finally and, and completely the day of judgment has passed and we have been passed over and we will celebrate with the King of all creation, Jesus Christ. When all of His promises have become complete in us. And I am sure that there were many times and many days as the Israelites wandered in the wilderness that they were led to doubt whether the promises of God were true. And we know that many of them perished in that wilderness because they gave up their faith that the promises were true. But what this passage reminds us is that for those God has set apart, He will protect, He will preserve if we endure in faith. Well, next week we're going to see how some of those promises come alive. I'm sure there'll be a lot of questions, but we'll save those for next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank You again. We thank You that You protect Your children, that You preserve Your children. We thank You, God, that though this world throw reproach upon us, we, we can stand firm in the promise that Yet a day is coming when the reproach will be rolled away and we will be shown with Your Son, Jesus, in glory. God, I pray for those here who are enduring a spiritual battle unbeknownst to them, who are fighting an enemy that they cannot see, an enemy that they don't even realize is there, And they're completely unprepared to handle the battle because they lack the circumcision of their heart. I pray, God, by by Your Holy Spirit that, that You would convict them and turn them to faith in Your Son, Jesus Christ. May those of us who have received that circumcision of heart, who have received the new heart, that have received Your grace and Your Spirit, May we be faithful to proclaim that message and show others where it might be found. It's in Christ's name we pray.